0: All right, we are back at it this morning, TVC, in our series, Invincible Church, looking at what makes church, church. And what we've seen in each of these sermons this morning is that embedded within the very DNA of a church, there's this this invincibility, this characteristic of no matter what happens at the end of the day, the church will be standing. Why? Because of the God of the church. Amen? Amen. Because at the end of the day, the creator king of the universe is the one who built this. And God didn't just start this church as some kind of experiment or side project, right? The church is God's plan A in the world, and there are no contingency plans. And this morning, we're going to zero in on what that means. This morning, we're going to focus on the church as the mission of God. And in order to do that, we're going to dive into Scripture Our text this morning is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So if you're new to the Bible, no worries. That is completely okay. We're going to have the text of our passage this morning up on the screens for you. And also, if you're new, I do want to say you're welcome here. We're so glad you're here. Please come up to me or any of the greeters after the service. We'd love to help you get introduced to your Bible and to this community as well. Now, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be reading from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Of the age. This is God's word. You may be seated. Mission statements. The best organizations in the world have a mission statement. A clear and compelling, meaningful, sometimes short statement that gives the why behind their what. They communicate purpose. They, they serve as this framework for every decision. They make the goal of that organization crystal clear. For example, The airline, JetBlue's mission statement, is this, to inspire humanity both in the air and on the ground. It's a pretty lofty mission statement for an airline, but that's neither here nor there. The nonprofit TED, with all those awesome YouTube videos, thought-provoking talks on YouTube, has a simple mission, spread ideas. Easy to remember, easy to follow. The tech giant, Google, has also a simple and clear message to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Clear expectations, right? You head to the Google website, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. There's a big search bar right in the middle. The church is so much more than an organization, but it is not without a mission statement. The church is so much more than an institution, but it is not without a mission. And from our text this morning, we actually get our mission statement as a church. Here is our mission statement. Make Disciples who make disciples. Simple, but difficult. Short, but lifelong. And something to which we can and must give our whole lives to. Why? Why would you give your life to this? Well, our text this morning gives us three reasons why. The first reason, because of the resurrected king's authority. The second because of the resurrected king's command. And the third because of the resurrected king's presence. We give our lives to make disciples who make disciples, not just because that's the mission, not just because that's what Christians do, but because Jesus, our resurrected king, with cosmic authority commands it, and because he promises to be present with us as we accomplish it. So here's our plan this morning. We're going to set up the story that we just stepped into with the context in verses 16 through 17, and then we'll walk through the rest of the text and look at each of these reasons why we give our lives to make disciples who make disciples. So Let's start with that context. Look at your text in verses 16 through 17. The first thing I want us to notice when we jump into this text is that we're not jumping in at the beginning of a story. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. We are jumping in at the beginning of the final scene in the Gospel of Matthew. A Gospel that opened with the words, the genealogy, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now ends with the final words of Jesus, that promised Messiah, of the royal line of King David, and the promised line of Father Abraham, the father of God's people Israel. This entire book has been working towards revealing Jesus as the promised Savior who will rule over the entire universe as the true King, who will fulfill the promises to Abraham to be a blessing, to make him and his descendants a blessing to every nation. And throughout this entire book, Jesus is explaining how this is going to happen to his disciples through suffering, by dying, in what appears to be the least powerful, least king-like, most unexpected way, by dying on a cross and then somehow coming back to life. But here we are with the 11 disciples on a mountain, on the mountain apparently, waiting to meet Jesus. The one who just days ago they watched beaten, tortured, abused the one who cried out through blood, sweat, and tears, through humiliation, pain, and suffering to a God that he thought abandoned him, asking that same God to forgive his torturers, the one they watched carried into a tomb, sealed behind a rock, guarded by those same torturers, waiting for the one they loved, the one who died, the one they followed for three years, the one they trusted, even if he did say some things that he didn't quite Understand, here we are with a group of disciples wondering, could it be true? If these women who said that they had encountered the risen Jesus and worshiped him had actually met their beloved Jesus, thinking to themselves, I mean, they were out of breath as they told them what happened. Their tears are streaking across their face, smiles beaming from their lips as they told them what happened. Could it be true? And then the text says that they saw him. It was him. Was it him? He didn't really look quite the same, right? He's familiar and their hearts both jump and shake. Joy mixes with fear. Is this really happening? And as we stand here with these disciples, observing this scene, my question this morning is, do we feel the moment? What would you have done? How would you have reacted? Right? If I, The text says they worshipped him, but some doubted. And if I'm honest, and I bet if you're honest too, our answer might sound the same most times. On some days, we worship him. Right? We are sold out for Jesus on fire. We recognize him immediately. Our heart jumps for joy. We worship. There are other days where we doubt, where we hesitate. We can't quite recognize him. It feels like we're seeing him through a fog, this fog of doubt. You know, this word here in this text for doubt actually shows up only one other time in the entire New Testament. It shows up in the story of Peter following Jesus out of the boat and walking on water. An incredible act of faith. I don't know about you, I would be pretty worried about walking on water. But soon after he steps on in faith, he starts to sink in fear. And Jesus catches him. But he asks him a piercing question. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And here in this story, as well as in our text, in this particular scene, this question is not about being skeptical, about completely disbelieving Jesus. It's about hesitation, uncertainty. And to be honest, I'm really glad that it is, right? Because I'm really glad that the resurrection didn't immediately transform these men who were called men of little faith, who over and over again don't understand what Jesus is doing, into the spiritual giants they became. I'm glad because it means, like, just like them, we're in process. There's a journey to walk. We're on a journey. They were on a journey. But Jesus, in this text, answers doubt, and aren't you glad that he does? He answers my doubt. He answers your doubt. He answers their doubt with this first reason that I've been talking about, about why we give our lives to this mission of God to make disciples He makes disciples. He answers them with the resurrected king's authority. You know, authority is this... um, Funny word these days, right? It seems like, if you really think about it, it feels like people are allergic to authority, right? Social media has created this world where anyone with two thumbs and a smartphone or two hands and a keyboard can become an expert. And yes, in some very important ways, social media has exposed abuses of authority. But it has also blurred the lines between truth and fiction with things like deep fake videos, unverified claims, and the weird idea that if you just type in all caps, you're just speaking the truth louder. The word authority tends to grate on our ears and on our hearts for a lot of different reasons. Maybe you've experienced a distorted authority. Or maybe it's the desire to be the captain of your own ship, master of your own destiny. But authority, placed in nail-scarred hands, working out the love of a spear-pierced heart, has the power to silence that grating and make authority this sweet word, an empowering word, a word that transforms suspicion to trust. I'll show you. Look at verse 18 with me. Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. As the hearts of those that are before him bow in worship or race with doubt, King Jesus comes to them. At first they saw him, but now he approaches. He draws near to them. He comes to them and his first words to them confirms their worship and dispels their doubt. All authority. Take note of that word all because it's all over our text. It's an important word, all authority. The resurrected king's authority is not shared, distributed, diluted, or incomplete. It is total, full, intact, whole. All authority in heaven and on earth. It's not confined to a city, restricted to a region. It is not to uh, quote genie and Aladdin, phenomenal cosmic power, itty bitty living space. It's cosmic authority that transcends any boundary stretches to every single corner of creation. Like the theologian Abraham Kuyper says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. Jesus comes to his disciples and declares that he has complete authority. But it's not just that he has it, but that he has been given it. Remember when we were going through Philippians a few months ago? Paul explains in Philippians 2, 6-11, I'll read it, it's on the slide. Being in very nature God, talking about Jesus, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. The authority of King Jesus. The authority of this resurrected King is complete. Spans across time and space is full cosmic authority because it has been given to him by the Father. Why do we give our lives to the mission of making disciples who make disciples because of the one who gave us that mission, the one who made it our mission? He is the resurrected king who has been given all authority, which means that his very next words should carry a lot of weight. But what makes this authority sweet to the ears, refreshing to the heart, empowering to the soul and trustworthy is because it is an authority that is fundamentally different than how others exercise authority. We've already talked about the context in this scene, but I'm going to take you back a few more verses. Look at Matthew 28, 11 through 15, right before our text. 11 through 15, Matthew records a different scene. He says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders, devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Do you catch the contrast? The Jewish authorities, the chief priests, used bribe money to commission soldiers to spread lies. But the resurrected king, with all Cosmic authority is about to use the promise of his presence to commission his disciples to spread gospel truth, the good news of the kingdom. That is a different kind of authority. That is an authority we can trust, an authority we must trust. He gave everything for us. Not just so that we can feel better about ourselves, but so that we who were dead in our sins might actually have life. We give our lives to make disciples who make disciples because of the resurrected king's God-given, blood-bought, resurrection-proved authority. We also give our lives to make disciples who make disciples because of the resurrected king's command. So our first reason is that we, get, we give our lives to this mission because of the resurrected king's authority, but now we turn to verses 19-20 through 20 to see that we give our lives because of this second reason, the resurrected king's command. A few weeks ago, Jocelyn and I were walking, Jocelyn's my wife, not everybody has met her yet, hard moment to meet people. Um, we were walking in downtown Naperville, passing shops and people eating um, at tables and stuff, and seeing different people, and then all of a sudden we come across this dog sitting in the middle of the sidewalk, kind of looking around, are we being punked, Candy camera, I have more 90s reference to come. Until we realized that there was A guy all the way at the end of the block, eyes locked with his dog, issuing a command to stay. And then all of a sudden he issues another command and the poodle starts to prance towards him. And he issues another command and he jumps up on top of one of the pillars by the street balancing on all four paws. Now some of you may know this, but the Solomon family is about to introduce a new member of the family, a dog at some point in the next few weeks. And I can promise you, I shouldn't make this promise, I really want to train that dog to mow the lawn and change diapers. But my question in this story is, why is that dog obeying the commands to stay and come and balance? Because of who was talking to him? Because of who was making the commands. Because the identity of the one who commanded him. The reason we give our lives for this mission. Why we obey and live out this mission. Why we make disciples who make disciples. Is because it is the resurrected king's command. Because it is a mission commanded by this resurrected king. Look at verse 19. Here's his command. Therefore go and make disciples. Notice here the very first word. Therefore. Pause. Whenever you see a therefore in your Bible TVC, I want you to ask the both very cheesy but also really helpful question what is that therefore, therefore? Okay? Bible Study 101, really helpful. How is this connecting? And in our text, it, it, it connects this explicit command or explicit designation of Jesus' authority to this explicit command of that, from that authority. Jesus has all authority and Jesus makes this command and it is based off of his authority. In other words, his authority has ramifications for those who follow him here on this earth. Because he is who he is and has the authority that he has, he can command his disciples. And what does he command? Go and make disciples. The way this is written here, the emphasis is on making disciples, but the command to go is also clear as day. The command here is duplication, multiplication. Go and make more of yourselves. It's the kind of evangelism and gospel proclamation that does not stop after initial faith, right? It doesn't just stop after someone professes that they believe in Jesus. It's the kind of evangelism that makes disciples, not just converts. And as one writer puts it, the apostles are called here not to evoke decisions, but to make disciples. And that is an altogether tougher assignment. Why is it tougher well, to answer that, we have to define the word that I keep using, disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple is someone who has been brought into relationship with the teacher and, in so doing, takes what that teacher says as authoritative. In other words, they accept what the teacher says as true and submits to the teacher's requirements as right because it is the teacher who is saying them, the teacher who is requiring them. A disciple is a learner, a follower. This isn't some kind of identity you can take on and off like a uniform after your shift or like walking out of school at the end of the day. This is complete, wholehearted, full commitment to Jesus. This is give your life for this, no expiration date, definitely going to cost you something kind of commitment. This isn't an easy life or an easy ask. So when we are commanded to go and make disciples, it is a command that should feel overwhelming. It is a command that should feel like too much. It is a command that should feel impossible. But Jesus doesn't necessarily let up here, right? He continues to up the ante. Go and make disciples of all nations. Notice again here the emphasis on all. His authority is complete in all realms, both in heaven and on earth in the previous verse. And now his command is complete across every continent, every language, in every culture and ethnicity. A disciple is not just a learner or a follower. A disciple comes from every kind of nation. And here we have the continuation of God's plan in Genesis, right? To bless all the nations of the world through Abraham, the same plan that Matthew makes clear Jesus has come to fulfill in the first verse of his book, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we have what later explodes in technicolor in John's vision of the, the church in Revelation 7 when John writes, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The resurrected King's command is worldwide in scope, and it means that we are to make disciples of all people everywhere, period. This is why Justine loved and served people in Niger, by caring for them in physical therapy, by caring for them with the gospel. This is why we send so many missionaries to so many countries across the globe. This is also why we love and serve our neighbors right here. Take a look at your neighborhood. In Streamwood, in Elgin, in Bartlett, in Hanover Park, in Schaumburg, Hoffman Estates, Roselle, and on and on in the surrounding towns, TVC, the nations are here too. This is a call to both global and local missions. That's why this text is so beautiful. It's a command to go across the ocean and across the street. So, TVC, the question comes before us, are we intentionally, prayerfully planning to make disciples? Right? Not through a particular program, though those can be helpful, but as a community in our neighborhoods? Are we on purpose praying that God might open our eyes to those that he keeps bringing into our sphere of influence, intentionally introducing them to Jesus, maybe helping them grow in Jesus? This isn't just like handing a track tool to someone you see. that can be helpful, God can use that. What would it look like for you to ask someone if they would read the Bible with you? If you could pray for them, what would it look like if you just asked someone for their story? And prayed as they told that story. God, how does, I know your gospel reaches this person in particular. How does it connect? What does it look like to get to know people so that you can introduce them to Jesus? Not to get a notch on your belt, but because you love them and because you love Jesus. You see, the resurrected king commands us to be on mission, on his mission, to make disciples who makes disciples. Look at that second half of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. Jesus clarifies an expectation for them. And what I want to bring out of this part of the text is that Jesus is not explaining to them how to make disciples. They already know how to do that, right? Throughout the gospel, they've been preaching the gospel. Jesus has sent them out to the surrounding towns. God, by his spirit, is the one who opens people's eyes and saves them. But here in this text, Jesus is saying that we respond to God's saving work by baptizing and teaching them, teaching these new disciples. It's a subtle Change, but even this command, we can't get overexcited and think that we are the ones who save. We are to go make disciples by preaching God's gospel and responding to God's work by baptizing and teaching. We participate in God's work, but it is always and forever a work of God to bring the spiritually dead back to life in Christ. This isn't delegation that's happening here. This is bring your kid to work day. Every day we follow the Father in His work when we go and make disciples. And we respond to that work by baptizing disciples, right? We respond to that work by initiating people into the church. This has happened from the very beginning all the way in Acts 2. The church proclaims this reality. Peter preaches a sermon. People respond and they ask him, what are we supposed to do now? And he says, repent and be baptized. Baptism is this outward symbol of an inward reality. It is a sign of resurrection. It is a symbol that proclaims as you rise from the water so Also, you have risen to new life. And here Jesus makes it clear. It's a rhythm of the church that is done in the triune name. Look at the text. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in doing this here, Jesus once again proclaims his divinity, reiterates the Spirit is a person, not just some personal Star Wars force, and reaffirms the unity and plurality of God. Notice, the name is singular, not plural. And yet he still names three persons. Baptism is a rhythm, a ritual, a visible testimony that declares the disciples' allegiance to God, to the Father who sent Jesus and has given Jesus all authority, to Jesus who died and came back to life, to the Spirit who is promised to everyone who believes. Baptism is not the end, but the beginning, a once-for-all, unshakable, emphatic incorporation within the people of God. It's that important. But we also respond to the work of God by instructing those disciples. Look at the text. Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Don't miss this. Part of the command is to teach, to instruct. That is why I'm up here preaching. That is why we are gathering in life groups and and, and teaching and instructing each other. That's why we gather across tables. That's why we disciple in this particular way. Paul commands Titus to command older men to teach younger men and older women to teach younger women But it's not just an intellectual exercise. Teach them to obey. Some translations have observe. This isn't a one-time thing. This is lifelong. This is a way of life that Jesus is commanding here. The meaning here is to teach them to obey and to keep obeying. Obey what? Observe what? Everything. Literally all the things is what this text says. Notice here again the word all all authority, all nations, and all the things. There's no selective obedience track for disciples. Or you can just be like, hey, I like this part, but I don't like that part. There's no picking and choosing. Teach these disciples to obey everything that I have commanded you, everything that Jesus has commanded, right? So this is also especially important, right? We, I've preached before, we don't leave the Old Testament out and ignore two-thirds of our Bible. But we don't live out of the Old Testament, King Jesus has described a new way of life in his kingdom that follows the line started in the Old Testament but is still a radical redefinition of what it means. And in commanding that, it is clear that there's never a time when Jesus envisions his commands to be out of date, to become untrue or unnecessary, to be superseded. The way of life of a disciple is the way of life Jesus. It's the way of the kingdom, and we're commanded to pass that along as part of our own discipleship, which means... That we have to know that way, and live that way, and communicate that way. It means we have to be in our Bibles. It means we have to be in Jesus' teaching. It means we have to be living in obedience to what God has commanded us as a community. This isn't just some philosophy to play around with. These are commands to be obeyed. TVC, you see, what does obedience to Jesus' call look like to make disciples right now in our lives today, in 2020, here in this community, Obedience to this means we proclaim the gospel, we challenge people to make a decision for Jesus, to become a disciple, to take seriously the visual sign of baptism. But it also means that we faithfully, with love and grace, nurture those disciples in the entire counsel of God. We are all disciples, disciples who both witness and instruct. But this doesn't mean that we forget everything that we learned last week. We are part of a body, And there are different gifts. And some of us may be stronger at witnessing and others at instructing. We are to continue developing those gifts, don't get me wrong. But we do not shirk our responsibility that each and every one of us has. In this command that we have received from our resurrected King, we are disciples who witness and instruct. Our mission is to make disciples who make disciples. And we know this, that that whole second part, right? We get the make disciples. That's what Jesus, go and make disciples. But it's to make disciples who make disciples. And here's where I get that. Because the resurrected King Jesus tells us to go and make disciples, and after bringing them in through baptism, we have to teach them everything Jesus commanded. Which, guess what? Includes this command. We make disciples who make disciples. Period. We give our lives for this mission, for these three reasons I've already mentioned. We recognize the resurrected King's authority. We obey the resurrected King's command. And now, third and final reason because we are promised the resurrected King's presence. In the past few years, my wife Jocelyn and I have um, gone through some hard things. We've, uh, a few years ago, suffered a miscarriage of twins. Um, About a year and a half ago, I had been diagnosed with cancer. And in each of those moments, we, we prayed. We processed, we cried, we got angry, And it was faithful brothers and sisters who sat with us, who prayed with us, who cried with us, who at times didn't say a single word. It was their presence that communicated their love and their care in our darkest moments. It was presence that we needed in those moments. And in a more powerful and enduring way, it is presence that the resurrected King promises to us. Look at the second half of verse 20. There's the promise. Surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Jesus stresses how certain this promise is by saying, "Surely I." No one less than me. That is what I'm promising you. The resurrected King promises himself to his people. The Jesus Matthew writes about here isn't just some small town, uh, small time teaching Jesus preacher or Jewish preacher. He is the authoritative resurrected king who promises to be with his disciples wherever they are and he can make good on that promise. And notice here there's no therefore, there's no if, there's no only when. This is a promise that is not contingent on how good or bad we are at making disciples. This is a promise that is not affected by our failure or success in our obedience. This is a promise that is based in and only in the character and person of Jesus Christ. We are promised the presence of the resurrected King Jesus, no matter what. And it is a promise that endures throughout time. Look at the text. The word there, always, is actually literally the word, the words all the days. Not just until the end, but in each and every day as we're living it. All authority, all nations, teach them all the things, and I'll be with you all the days. We are never left to figure out how to do this on our own, based on just what we've learned We are always promised the presence of King Jesus. We are always promised Emmanuel, God with us. The Gospel of Matthew actually opens with the assurance that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And now the Gospel of Matthew closes with the promise that Jesus will never stop being Emmanuel, God with us. No matter what happens. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it is to be be a disciple, to help others become disciples, we are never left alone. This is why we give our lives to this. Why we give our lives to this mission. To make disciples who make disciples for three reasons. Because we submit to the resurrected king's authority. We obey the resurrected king's command. And we are promised the resurrected king's presence. The authority of Jesus and the presence of Jesus motivates us to obey the command of Jesus to make disciples, whether across the street or across the ocean, we make disciples who make disciples. That's our mission. I love the way the Gospel Transformation Study Bible puts this, right? It talks about the message of the gospel is clear. And it says, at the beginning of time, when God created humanity, we lived in this garden, the Garden of Eden. And it was paradise because of God's presence. Because in that garden, humanity was in real relationship with God. But then we gave up Eden when we disobeyed God. We lost access to Eden. We lost access to God's presence. And as the Bible explains, we actually get to catch a peek into Eden through the tabernacle and the temple. When God starts to build his people together, he starts to command them to build a tabernacle and a temple. And he He commands and he helps them to build these spots that will be places where he could dwell. But even that wasn't the same. In a way, it was a return to Eden, but only the high priest could enter those places once a year. It wasn't the same. But when Jesus came on the scene, when Jesus got up on the cross, when Jesus breathed his last, something amazing happens. The Bible says that the curtain that separated that holy spot where God's presence dwelt from these sinful people that couldn't get in was torn. And not just torn, but from top to bottom, God was busting out. His presence was once again going to be among his people. Why? Because of Jesus' sacrifice. Once again, we have access to his presence. Emmanuel, God with us. We make disciples who make disciples because as these final words in the Gospel of Matthew show us, this isn't the final chapter. There's more to come. We are still writing that final chapter until we look like Revelation 7. Every tribe, people, nation, and tongue. All nations living the life of a disciple in obedience to all that Jesus has commanded, in relationship with the authoritative, resurrected King Jesus all the days. This is the promise. This is the gift. This is the mission. TVC, are we going to obey? TVC, will we be disciples who make disciples? Would you pray with me now? that that would be so. King Jesus, we have come before you in worship this morning. And we are grateful that even when we doubt, when we hesitate, you come to us. That you have come to us. You've given us your very life, that we might have life. And we pray that this morning and this week and in each and every day, you would continue to work your word into our hearts and into our lives. Would you continue to shape us as disciples with everything that you have commanded your people? Would you continue to shape us as disciples who make disciples? God, I beg of you, help us keep the main thing the main thing. Discipleship over programs. We aren't here just to make this church look good. We are here to be your church. To respond to your love and grace by communicating and sharing that love and grace with others. We confess and we proclaim that we believe your gospel. We pray that you would put us in situations and relationships and conversations that would give us the opportunity to help others believe that gospel. King Jesus, we thank you for your presence by your spirit. We love you. Amen.